Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the Founder Pack Podcast. Yes, uh, Brendan, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. How is your week going so far? Week is going awesome. I just came back from a uh, very large industry event in Europe, in Amsterdam. And um, uh, wow, uh, you know, uh, attendance was strong. Uh, a lot of great business discussions. You know, we're certainly there's some challenging pockets of the economy, uh, but there there are still markets that are um, that are accelerating, you know, and, and, and doing quite well. So part of our discussion today will be definitely uh, market ecosystems, uh, recessions or overcorrections. Yeah. We'll yeah, the back, big question we'll debate right? on that. <laughs> Um, but before we dive in, this is a, a first for the Founder Pack podcast. We've generally only had founders uh, on the podcast prior, and I'm excited to have a fractional CMO for the first time on the podcast, kind of sharing with founders um, best marketing practices, even though I don't love that term. <laughs> So without right. any further ado, I'd love to quickly have you introduce yourself and just kind of share a little bit about your background. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so super quick. So I'm a, um, uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a technical person who ultimately never made it into uh, engineering or, you know, or developing. Um, I was given a book by an uncle when I was 12 years old. Uh, and it was about programming languages and it just blew my mind that I could make a machine, um, do something, you know, with some commands. And, uh, so I dove in and, uh, this is a number of years ago, uh, discovered my school's Apple II computer and, uh, had a great time teaching myself basic and, you know, learning. Um, my dad worked for Hewlett Packard. Uh, he's since retired, but, uh, he was building uh, silicon, so, you know, chips. And so I grew up in a very technical kind of engineering, you know, type household. Um, went into a computer science program because it was a foregone conclusion that that's what I would do. And uh, after a couple of years, realized that I actually enjoyed music more than I enjoyed uh, programming and, you know, working, um, you know, working in engineering. That makes With two of us. Yeah. So, you know, so, so dropped out, worked for a couple of years, ended up going to music school, um, had a great time. Uh, you know, I was in heaven until I woke up one day and realized that I was kind of on a path to being a poor, starving musician. <laughs> Just like most of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, um, you know, so I went, Hmm, let's see, what am I going to do here? And I was, you know, I was putting myself through college, uh, selling, uh, actually working in an Apple retailer. Now this is before Apple stores. So this is when Apple only distributed through just, you know, independent resellers. And, uh, so anyway, long story short, you know, found my way, um, into sales and, you know, eventually, um, you know, expanded my career and started doing some really interesting things, um, all leading sales teams. Um, there was a common theme though, is that along the way, I was either in a position of needing to do my own marketing or, um, just, you know, actively, shall we say, um, working with marketing because I understood just intuitively that marketing was an accelerator, you know, for, for, for me in a revenue position and for the teams, you know, that I was leading, um, so I guess, you know, as, as I began to just do more of that, eventually I formally took on, you know, like sales and marketing roles, you know, where I had, where I had direct responsibility for both. Uh, and, and then, you know, that just took me into more of the strategy and the business development side, which eventually pulled me into more of, um, what I really think about today is go to market. 
And one of the things that I think we should talk about is, is that the role of the CMO, the, the role of the head of marketing in really, I would argue any organization, regardless of industry, is as much strategy and it's a business role than it is marketing. And I don't think everybody gets that. And certainly, uh, I'm, I'm meeting a lot of marketers that don't get that. You know, still assume that it's about executing the classic, what I like to call the MBA playbook. And unfortunately, um, that's not very effective in, in many, many, many uh, business contexts today. So yeah, so that's my journey. So I work with startups. Uh, I work primarily with technical founders. Um, uh, I, you know, I work in B2B context. Uh, I'm, you know, B2C is a whole different, uh, domain and, uh, it's very, uh, something that, you know, I, I'm not particularly drawn to as an, as an engineer and an engineering person. So, yeah, it's fascinating because I didn't know that you started in music. We both share a similar path into marketing. I also had just the same journey as you, except I didn't do engineering. I just went into sound engineering and also Very woke up one day. <laughs> well, we'll have um, to compare like... notes because uh, <laughs> at one point I had a three-car garage um, that was finished into a recording studio. And, um, and, and my joke was among all my friends that, you know, Hey, you want to see my, you know, my Ferrari, my sports car, you know, and of course you'd go in the garage and, and, and we'd go into my recording studio because I nearly had as much invested as what, you know, and it was in the garage, you know, so <laughs> of course hilarious. those who knew me, you know, of course they understood, but people who didn't, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, let me see. You know, they go into this room and look at all this keyboards and equipment or like, well, where's your car? <laughs> it's like, this is it. <laughs> so, you got to rev the knobs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I warned you prior to hitting the record button that our questions might get thrown out the window. <laughs> and that's we will... okay. I can improvise, you know, being a musician, right? <laughs> because you, you opened up with the end of our show, which I think we'll start mm -hmm. with now, seeing as though you alluded to go to market. Yeah. Uh, first principles in your engineering background, it all makes sense to me now why you positioned it as first principles. Let's open up with go to market, what you were saying about most marketers are executing the traditional MBA playbook. I would love to hear about your first principles approach. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So, um, so first principles, I, I think by now, um, you know, everybody in the business world has, has heard of, you know, the whole concept and, you know, there's a lot of academic uh, information, but just to, for those who might be like first principles, what's he talking about? It really is as simple as this. It's rather than approaching a, a, a problem and, and looking for a solution, solving a problem with kind of a very classic, Hey, I have this problem. What are the known solutions out there for it? You know, what are the known problems? You know, what are the processes, et cetera, et cetera. And then going and executing it saying, I have this problem. Now let me strip down to the most basic elements. Um, what a solution might, first of all, what the problem is. And then what's an appropriate solution? One example that, um, is, is, uh, fairly well known, uh, but it's what Elon Musk did was SpaceX. And, uh, and I think we've all heard about how SpaceX rockets actually can land themselves. Now, this may sound like, wow, that's just an amazing engineering feat. Isn't that cool? Well, it actually was very, very practical because when Elon Musk looked at the cost, you know, he asked himself, why is it so expensive to put a vehicle into space, a vehicle meaning a rocket? Uh, well, what he learned, one of the reasons was, was that everything was being built and literally after each mission, it was destroyed. <laughs> it was lost. So you would spend this hundreds of millions of dollars, launch these things and it was gone. So every mission by, by definition cost hundreds and hundreds of, of millions of dollars. I don't know the exact, but it was just incredibly expensive. Well, the first principles view. So you could look at this a couple of ways and I'm going to connect this to marketing, but this is a great explanation of, of how this relates to first principles and market development. 
So Elon Musk could have said, well, let me just go find how I can grind the vendors lower than NASA is able to do. You know, I can beat the government, right? So maybe I can get a 30 or 40 or even a 50% cost reduction just by, you know, I, I'm just not going to pay Lockheed Martin and Boeing and, you know, all these vendors as much as what they charge the government. Okay. That would get you a certain improvement. And he could have gone around and maybe found other ways to trim costs. But instead he said, what if the rocket wasn't thrown away? What if the rocket was reusable? That's first principles thinking. Now that also means there's a whole different set of engineering challenges. So then you um, build this rocket that's reusable, plus you get the cost efficiencies that we talked about. And all of a sudden now he comes in at 90% lower cost, not 30, 40, 50%. That's first principles thinking. So um, a lot of marketing um, doesn't start with the customer. And I believe if you don't start with the customer and then reverse engineer their buying decision, then this is why you end up with the you know very uh, cliched saying, 50% of marketing works. The problem is we don't know which 50%. <laughs> and we've all heard that. Maybe even some of us have even said that. Um, I actually don't believe that that has to be true. Now, it is true that a lot of marketing is very difficult to attribute you know, did I really, uh, you know, win this particular customer because we were at, at this event or that event, or was it because of this Facebook ad series or this LinkedIn ad, or was it because of this email? The fact of the matter is it was probably a confluence of all those things. And, and that's just the nature of marketing. But the fact is, is that I like to start with how does the buyer buy how do they make a buying decision and then reverse engineer and then create the, the, the market or connect and create, you know, the marketing tactics that connect and support that buying process? That's first principles. To that point, wouldn't you say that it's becoming uh, more expensive to market today because mm -hmm. your customers are just everywhere? There's multiple touch points, multiple folks engaging. So on some level, even if you do that exercise, you're probably going to find that you need all those channels, but then you're going to need to make a decision. Okay, well, we have this budget. Where should we put our eggs? I don't know if that's a, a conundrum you face. Yeah, 100%. Um, and especially in a growth stage company, which by definition you know, or an earlier stage company. So a startup, by definition, you have limited resources and, you know, you, you may be limited just in, um, in people, um, you know, you've got a small team. Um, usually you're limited in people and in budget, meaning how much, you know, you can spend. Um, so usually you have both, but um, regardless of, you may have money to spend, um, but, and it may even be an appropriate amount, but you're limited in people. So yeah. Um, when you strip it down to first principles though, it has some incredible benefits because now when you make trade-offs, you're making them, uh, more, uh, with more intelligence. So let me try and illustrate this, what, what this would look like. I mentioned that I just came back from a, from a very large trade show, um, large for the industry that I primarily work in. Uh, I think there were, you know, I don't know, roughly around 50,000 attendees. It's a very targeted, you know, so of those 50,000, the odds are that a meaningful percentage, um, any vendor who's there could do business with them. So it's, and uh, it's, it's, sorry to interrupt you. I'm glad you chose the, trade show example because trade shows i think are coming back and after your use case i would also like to hear from you how do you optimize or maximize your return on investment mm. from going to an event because i know a lot of people will tell you it's a nice to have but we never see deals coming from it so yeah. we'll be interested yeah. to hear your thoughts around yeah. the roi 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think we'll get to that answer. Um, But, you know, we were talking about how to balance uh, when you have budget constraints. And, you know, if you're a startup, you're, you're, you're a smaller company, you just have limited resources, you know, how do you decide I'm going to go here? I'm not going to go here. I'm going to invest here. I'm not, I'm going to cut this back. I'm going to increase, you know, how do you decide when you reverse engineer the buyer's journey and the buyer's journey is really, I, I, I like to even talk about it in terms of just decision gates that they have to cross through. And, and this, and number one, if, uh, if anybody's listening and if you're sort of thinking, wow, I don't think I really know, or I've not taken the time to map my typical buyer's journey. Like I really couldn't define what those decision gates are. You need to do that because if you can't map that, then by very definition, your go-to-market strategy is going to be luck-based. You're going to be doing everything based on, well, I hope this works. <laughs> this worked last time. Let's see if it works now. And that's luck-based. And that is no way to take control of your destiny. So um, so that's the, my first comment is, I'm assuming that you at least have you, meaning you, you know a founder, you know, a CEO, someone running marketing can at least describe with some specificity, here's the process that my buyers have to go through. Now, the journey is going to look different on organizations, you know, organization by organization. It's not identical. I get that. But there's usually three or four key steps that someone's got to go through. Okay. Now, what you do is you look at those gates and you say, how can I support from a marketing perspective somebody making a decision? So, so again, let me try and get practical here. So let's say that there's an evaluation or a POC that's required in your selling process. Now that might be a very lightweight thing. It might be as simple as giving credentials so that somebody can, um, um, uh, you know, just easily access your product and test and use it without having to, you know, set up a whole, uh, environment production environment, you know, there can, it can mean different things, but during that process, there are going to be people from the, um, target customer who get involved and guess what? They're going to start looking for information. They're going to use the product, but they're going to say, I, I, I wonder what else this can do. I wonder what reviews are available. I wonder what other people are saying. I wonder how the the performance of this compares to something else. So as a marketer, I want to know that. And I want to understand what are the specific questions that are common throughout that I can publish information, make it readily available. When I push keys out, you know, if it's like a SaaS product, when I push credentials out, I want to be able to send that to the customer. And maybe the next day I follow up with an email that says, Hey, you know, I, I hope you got onboarded. You know, if you didn't, here's how to contact us. By the way, here is a, you know, here's an article that was published in this industry magazine that compares this product to this other product. Maybe you would appreciate reading that. Okay. Rather than leaving it for their discovery, serve it up on a platter. And then you might say, um, okay, what about events? Where do events play into this? Well, you know, this is why understanding the buyer's journey is so important because is your buyer attending events? When they attend events, what is their psyche? What is their, what is their purpose of being there? Are they there? Are they there to um, maybe meet with vendors and get a sense of, hey, can this company support us? Do they have the scale? If you're selling into Fortune 100, Fortune 500, it might be that you need to identify even just one major industry event and you have a booth. It doesn't have to be the biggest booth. It doesn't have to be the, the, the fanciest. You know, uh, the, the industry understands small companies, you know, you're not going to come with a 100 by 50 foot, you, you know, with all kinds of 
you know, fancy, you know, accoutrements. Um, but you need to have a booth. Why? Because that is a sign that you're a real company. That's a sign that you're a durable company. That's a sign that you're not just going to show up this year at the show and then next year you might be out of business. Those are important business cues. And so when you're thinking about these trade-offs, that's how we started, um, you know, started uh, this discussion, um, then you can connect to, okay, um, I have a pipeline of six Fortune 500 companies that are really, really interested in doing business with us. Um, I can't afford to go to all of the events in my industry, but I can pick one and we can allocate sufficient budget to at least have maybe a 10 by 20, you know, uh, foot, foot booth, you know, quite small, quite modest, but guess what? We can make it look great. We can have a product on display. We can have our key, you know, we can have the founder of the company we can have our head of engineering or whoever the key folks would be. So that when someone comes and meets with us, they can feel, oh, wow, okay, I have a sense. I understand this company. Wow, they had a nice display. They, and, 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 and this is important. But if you don't understand the buyer's journey, then it'd be super easy to say, that's going to cost us $70,000. And the last event we went to, we didn't get any meaningful leads. Why don't we just skip it? And you'd miss out uh, potentially on a very, very important gate that's a part of the buying process because they can love your product. They can validate it. But if they don't have confidence that you're going to be around to support them, they're not going to buy. It's a very interesting observation. Personally, didn't put that much weight on the confidence of being at the booth standing your market though because because what i'm describing potentially does not map to you know to every market or every sales motion but it maps in my experience to more than most people would think with having said that perhaps people should put it into the bigger context of their marketing strategy and expectations, like your events, those are going to typically take a lot more time to see the ROI. From personal experience, maybe we're not the perfect examples, but I think more cases than not, it, it would be true that if we go to an event, we don't always have an agenda. To continue on the thread of events, this is something that we are putting quite a lot of time and effort into because it fits very much with our first principles. How do you get the most out of events? What sort of activities, agenda, strategies, mm -hmm. tactics do you use around events to support lead generation pipeline, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So I, I, I think the best, the best way to answer this is we do need to um, look at a um, think, think about a couple different um, um, business uh, sales, go to market motion context. Okay. So what do I mean? So, um, you know, sort of like a continuum, right? So on one end, uh, it doesn't matter the right or the left, but uh, you know, on one end is like your SaaS, unaided, basically you go to the website, it's like a $99 a month, a $49 a month per seat. Like, sure, maybe you can chat with somebody, but you know, there's, you know, it's very um, low touch sales, right? Um, and, and, and that's a very, very different go to market sales motion. Probably that's going to be a very, very large addressable market. It's probably going to be a pretty, um, easily understood, defined product. So, um, you know, so a lot of your, your, you know, fintech, certainly your sales tech, your martech solutions, your, um, y you know, kind of fall into that category, right? And then the continuum just begins to extend across where the, the deal size gets bigger. Usually as the deal size gets bigger, um, both complexity of the sale, uh, and meaning just the number of people involved in making a decision increases. Uh, and then also the integration complexity increases. Um, it can still be SaaS. 
you know, so it might still be largely delivered as a SaaS model. It's just that now there's probably going to be um, a, a person involved from the vendor side that's going to be needing to work closely, understand, you know, like there's a real sale that has to happen. Okay. And I'm not suggesting there's a sale that has to happen as well on the low end, the, you know, the $49 a month, but it's different, right? Um, and then you go all the way to the multi-year, literally where the sales process can be a lot of the clients and the companies that I work with. Sales process is two years, sometimes three years, sometimes four years. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't some sort of revenue that is being earned through that period of time. You know, there very often is a paid POC and then there might be you know, some NRE and there might be, but to get to full revenue, it's a three-year process. That's how long it takes. You know, I recently was a part of a, a of a very large engagement, um, multi, multi, multi seven figures. And, um, you know, we marveled at how quickly the deal happened and it was 20 months. And we marveled like, Wow, can you believe how quickly that came together? 20 months. Let's just call it two years, you know. Um, so so what I mean though is that you have to think about that continuum because also when you're looking at ROI and when you're looking at how you approach events. So um if you are more if your business model is more on where I started, you know, $49 a seat, you're just trying to get as many people into your free, you know, it's probably a freemium model, product-led growth, all of this. Um, then you're going to build your strategies, what your booth looks like, what your presence is, very, very different. Then if it's around this long, multi-year, very complicated, because also your TAM, by definition, probably um, um, shrinks considerably as you move you know, to that, to that big multi-year, multi-seven figure, you, you, you know, type, type sales process and engagement. So, um, the way that, uh, I think, first of all, where I think people get into trouble with events and especially whenever I get the feedback, like, yeah, we went to a couple shows. They didn't, they didn't pay off for us. I usually can ask just two or three questions and I can tell right away, did it not pay off? Because you know, they went with the wrong approach. More than half the time, they went with the wrong approach. In other words, they should have been there, the event, but they went with the wrong approach. So let me try and explain that. So if you're in this long multi-year engagement cycle, you are primarily wanting to be at that event to build credibility. And if you're a new company, and if you're, say, less than three years old, and maybe you've only really been in the market selling for a couple years, slapping your logo on everything, it's not very beneficial. So paying $25,000 for the lanyard sponsorship, paying another $15,000 to get your logo on the website of the event, paying another, you know, and go on and on and on is... Is, is actually meaningless. A, no one knows who you are. People do not look at the logo on their lanyard and say, huh, I wonder who that company is. I'm going to go Google them. Oh, I'm going to go look at them. Nobody <laughs> does that. Complete waste. ROI, zero. So, Sponsoring so, the Wi-Fi, the breakfast, the yoga. <laughs> breakfast, the uh, complete, absolute, utter waste. Give me that money. Give me a match. Let me just go ahead and set it on fire. You know, at least we'd have heat, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so guess what? A lot of founders though fall into it. Cause it's like, oh, wow, it'd be so amazing. Everybody's going to see our logo. This, um, e even if just half a percent of people come by our booth, the half a percent who actually do come by the booth are completely unqualified by definition because they have no idea who, who you are, what you do. And they're just curious. In fact, really what they want is your free coffee mug, t-shirt, pen, you know, they just want the swag, right? So completely unqualified. So absolutely there was no ROI, 100%, zero ROI. Could have told you that, you didn't have to spend the money. Now, what should they have done? Still be at the event, still have the booth, but invest on the front end in getting the right people to come see you. 
Now, what does that mean? That means that the success of the event hinges largely on how much front end outbound you did. And if someone says, oh, well, the whole purpose of going there is because we don't know who to call. And so we're hoping like, well, then don't go. Because if you don't do that outbound on the front end, there is no marketing trick. There's no silver bullet. There's no, you know, um, to, 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 to get people to suddenly come and to take you serious and take a meeting and then say, oh, wow, we've been waiting for a company like you, you know? So, so that is, I think, um, one of the, you know, really, really, really important things that gets missed especially if a founder um, doesn't come from a marketing background, maybe they come from a bigger company where the brand was so huge. You know, by definition, I work largely with technical founders. And by definition, they come out of Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft. And it's like when Google launches a product, like it's Google, <laughs> you know? And so they were running engineering, That's the only running time a product. When you build a product, they will come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so it's very natural. I, I really understand why technical founders fall into that trap. It's not because they weren't, you know, listening in the few business classes that they had, you know, in 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 college, you know, at university. It's just that you know the experience is well. When I build something, it just got adopted, you know. And guess what? I was building really, really great products. So I'm going to go off and start a company. We're going to build great products. They're going to get adopted. It's like, mm, no, <laughs> it'd be nice if it worked that way. So, so yeah. circling back to your point about like the preparation and the outbound, what strategies or approaches have worked for you to bring people to your booth prior to the event? I'm just curious to hear yeah. how you do it. Yeah. Um, well, this is where being a student of the ecosystem, the, you know, you could call it the market. I actually like to use the word ecosystem because, um, markets sometimes kind of a little broad and, 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 and ecosystem is really understanding who the important players are, who are the influencers. And I mean that both on your competitors, you know, you should be able to map. Um, not just, oh, this company has the same product we have. Okay, that's fine. But are they really, are they, are they really a competitor? You know, um, how are they positioned? How does the market look at them? So being a student is so important because the more that you understand about that, the easier it will be to go outbound and as a founder to be able to reach out. And I think a lot of founders underestimate the power of of when you are a founder and if you have developed something that is special enough it's actually not that hard to get a meeting and and people say well, what are you talking about like i'm really struggling to get meetings well there's probably something in the approach or something in the words or something in the positioning that you're missing because as a founder people are looking for innovation they are People are intrigued largely by startups, especially when it's technology oriented. And so you come and you say, um, you know, you contact somebody and, and say, you know, Brendan, um, hey, you know, so I write a LinkedIn message, let's say, you know, uh, Brendan, uh, you know, my name's Mark Donegan. Um, I started this company uh, called D-Launch. You know, we have developed some interesting technology in this particular area. I noticed that you guys are also in the space. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd really love just an opportunity, if anything, to get feedback or present to you what we're doing. Would this be of interest to you? It's not, you know, um, I, I, I built this. It's going to save you a million dollars. It's going to do this. It's, it, it's coming because notice that I connected my message. First of all, I showed that I understand what you do. I did the research. Okay. I didn't just say, Hey, you know, we've got this thing and, you know, I want to sell it to you. Can I get a meeting? When can I jump on your calendar? Like, I don't want anybody to jump on my calendar, you know, but I reached out with some intelligence. I gave some information that showed like, huh, okay, well, this guy did a little research. Yeah. Huh. And I go to the website and I go, huh, that's interesting. You know, and so next thing you know, Brendan writes me a note back and says, 
Hey, Mark. Um, yeah, it looks interesting. I'm busy in the next couple of weeks. What if we find time? You know, whatever. Great. We jump on that. And then that can obviously, if it's around a show, of course, then the ask is to say, you know, um, could, could I get 10 minutes with you at this event? So that's and, actually my next question. How do you connect your outreach to know these people will be attending a particular event? You don't. That, you, that you're going to. Yeah, yeah, you don't. And, and, and look, um, the, unfortunately, on the front end, when you are just getting off the ground, you know, when you are first um, uh, going to market commercially, I wish I could tell you there's a shortcut. There is, let me just, you know, put all of the guru wisdom aside. There is no hack. There is no growth hack. There is no tool. There is no magic button. <laughs> there is no secret email script. There is no, there isn't any. Um, I, to this day, uh, and I'm engaging with companies that are pretty well De developed. So, um, so I'm really not working too much, uh, with like, um, products that are just coming to market. I mean, I'm working with companies that have been selling in some cases for multiple years that have tens and tens of millions of dollars of revenue already that big logos. And I, in some cases still spend the majority of my time doing one-on-one -on -one outreach on LinkedIn. And I even had a conversation with a marketing team not too, too long ago when they were discussing, uh, ABM strategies and we were discussing, um, you know, the director of marketing had suggested a tool for targeting. And, uh, so, you know, we were looking at it and we were trying to decide, does this make sense? Can this, and, and I said, gang, like we don't need this tool. The tool we need is called fingers on a keyboard DMing on LinkedIn. Why? Because our market is very, very, very narrow. It's well known. And at the end of the day, the tool is just not going to get us there. And so we were spending all this energy trying to find these tech solutions. And guess what? It just needed a good old search, <laughs> a good old, and, and it takes time and it's hard and it takes effort. But that's what you have to do to build the market. There is no shortcut. There just isn't. Yeah, no, I think so, that's a, a great I wish, answer. I, I know everybody's looking for the hack, looking for the, you know, looking for the tool. I, I think your answer yeah. is the hack. Like it's just uh, human intelligence and uh, some sweat and blood. You can't automate and scale everything. Now, the interesting thing though is, is that um, as you begin to grow, um, your brand and as your category, as you begin to get known, then you can kind of go from the, um, you know, I think it was Mark Benioff, uh, who described it and, and I'm sure others have. So I, I'm not saying he's the first, but you know, I know that he has said this. He describes it as the army and the air force. And it's like the, the, the ground war. <laughs> is I don't necessarily like war analogies, but you know, the ground is, is the, um, is sales. It's like, it's one-to-one -one. it's, you know, it's literally face to face. It's, you know, it's that sales, right? Marketing tends to be more the air force, you know, flying above. The thing is, is that you need both, you know, and they both serve their place. But, um, at the same time, marketing now, especially in these longer, higher value deals, longer deal cycles, higher value marketing has to get a lot closer to the ground. And, and that's why like kind of the brand strategies, the whole idea, I, I'm going to, you know, get, get our logo on pens and we're going to ask people to come to our booth to enter a free drawing for an iPad and all this kind of stuff. It just, it doesn't, it never really worked that well, but now it doesn't work at all. Just set that money on fire, you know, just, just, just set it on fire. It doesn't work because you've got to be close to where the decision's being made. And, and that's at the ground level, that's on the ground. And so to start, there's just no substitute for, you know, direct outreach. And you're right. You have no idea if somebody's attending the trade show, but guess what? I can reach out. Hey, Brendan, you know, notice you're in this space. 
any chance you guys are going to be at, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, we're there, we're showing, you know, our first generation of blank, 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 you know, maybe it'd be of interest. Well, you might reply back and go, um, Hey, guess what? I am going to be there. My schedule's full up, but maybe we can schedule a call beforehand. Great. You know, maybe you're like, no, sorry, I'm not going to make it. Well, would you mind, you know, can we get on a call? I like, I'd like to show this to you. Maybe get some feedback. It's kind of a, a non-threatening, more passive approach to actually asking for their time. You didn't start with asking for their time. You started by asking, hey, are you going to this event? I see you're in X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's <laughs> an observation again around events uh, is um, people are are uh, tend to be because the very nature of an event an event is you know people coming together fundamentally to meet and you, you know so you have been you know you have buyers and sellers by very definition you know who are coming together i mean they're choosing to the sellers are coming to be available the buyers are coming to meet with sellers and so it tends to be very very um um uh, safe you know, and it is very safe as a seller, <laughs> as a vendor to approach a buyer and ask for a meeting. It's far more safe than if, if, than just sort of like contacting someone on LinkedIn and saying, Hey, I'm wondering if we can set up a call so I can present something I'm doing. You know, people are kind of like, oh, I'm busy. I, I don't think I have time for you, but it's like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to this conference. Sure. You know, my, my calendar's full, but I got 20 minutes. Great. Come on by won't take long. At least we can meet each other and, and you get that connection. And then with that connection, now, now you have an invitation unless they, you know, come by and go, yeah, we have no use for this, you know, but generally speaking. So I think the next sort of set of questions segues nicely from mm. the event. We spoke prior to this call about debate whether we're in a recession or in a market correction. I think we're personally more in a market correction based off a bunch of folks I've been speaking with in the investment world. Having said that, and I'm not an economist or anything like that, so don't take my word for it, but based on a few criteria, one, post-COVID companies realized they were overspending in many areas, employees mm. and software and overall efficiency. Mm. So now it feels like much harder for startups because if you don't have what some folks call it bleeding from the neck problem, sorry again yeah. for the, the war analogy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this this all plays into the, the bottom line. Should companies, startups cut back on marketing because they're not selling as easily? Now let's cut marketing. That's usually the knee-jerk reaction. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but how should founders look at marketing and how much should they invest, even though times may be slower than they were a few years ago? Yeah. Um, boy, you know, this one's tricky because there is an element that is just every situation's different. Um, and, and, and so I'm going to get to an answer. Um, but I, I want to make sure that I start there. Um, because there's no way to answer this without somebody going, yeah, yeah that's, you know, in, in a perfect world, I could do that, you know, or someone else would be like, geez, that's really conservative, you know? So, um, you have to do what's right for your business based on how much cash you got in the bank and, you know, and all of that. So, okay. With that caveat, um, a hundred percent, the money that you spend on marketing should be as mappable as is possible, but an important exclamation mark on as is possible, because actually a relative relatively small amount of marketing dollars that gets spent is really possible to say, I spent X and I got Y. Okay. Um, we're not in, and again, I'm speaking from a business to business context. I'm speaking, you know, if we were selling, um, you know, t-shirts on Facebook, um, then guess what? That's 
very quantifiable. I spent X on Facebook ads. I sold this many t-shirts. I can do the math, figure out if the economics makes sense. The businesses that I work with, none of those are in that, in that category. Um, but uh, getting back to, there still are, are certain activities that are more mappable to revenue or again, to moving the buyer through the decision gates than others. So, you know, look, we just talked about events. Maybe it, you don't have the 70 grand to go to an event, which by the way, for a lot of trade shows, you know, and I'm not talking about a big fancy booth, you know, a lot of shows for even a pretty small booth, by the time, you know, you bring staff and you pay for housing and, you know, you know, everything it's $50,000 for a startup. That's a, that's a lot of money. So you might say, Mark, I am totally with you and we really need to have a booth presence and we want people to feel incredible, but I don't have $50,000. Well, I would say, okay, take $10,000, fly, you know, fly the founder, a couple of the founders, your head of sales, or, or if you're still kind of founder led sales, you know, and go and use it as a, as an, as an aggregation point to be able to go set up meetings. Like, in other words, you're still there. You're still at the event. You can even, there's a certain amount of marketing presentation that you can give about you are at. So I can still contact Brendan and say, Hey, Brendan, you know, uh, wondering if you're going to be there. You know, we're, we're actually attending. True. I don't have a booth. Doesn't matter. I'm attending. We're attending. We're going to be talking about, you know, our new fill in the blank. Um, I would love to meet with you. You reply back, Hey, I am. Where's your booth? My reply is, um, Hey, this year we we actually don't have a booth, but I would love to come to you. Oh, Hey, we're in this booth. Oh, we're in this meeting room. Oh, we can find a. See, I can have the exact same meeting. I don't need to have the booth. Okay. So, so, um, the point would not be to say, oh, I'm not going to go to the show. In other words, you probably, unless you literally don't have any money, <laughs> but you know, so, and then you look across at the various investments that you're making and you know, there, it is relatively easy in a lot of marketing budgets to find, you know, um, I, I don't really like the word waste, but maybe fluff. You know, so, okay, you're spending $15,000 a month on Google AdWords campaign. Most of those campaigns, you could turn them off and you wouldn't notice at all, <laughs> you know, and it's really easy to do the analysis. So you just go into that and you say, you know what, let's turn off Google AdWords. Now, maybe you're able to reallocate that budget. That would be better than cutting it completely, you know, reallocate that. And that's what you should be doing all the time. But that's how I really think about looking at cutting investment and in marketing. Um, now, um, I do not advise just kind of the haircut, you know, um, hey, we just need to cut the marketing budget by 30%, you know, because maybe 30% is too deep, but 20% is possible. And maybe you need to find that other 10% elsewhere in the company. You know, maybe you can even cut it by 40%. <laughs> and, you know, again, through these, through these, you know, fluffy, you know, fluffy marketing initiatives, you know, and so you cut it by 30, but you actually could have gotten 10% out of it. So, you know, I think again, um, it, it's situational, and you also have to very much look at your um, sales pipeline, look at what the requirements of the sales pipeline are, make sure you don't suddenly become invisible, you know, to the market that you're currently visible in. You don't want to do that, you know? So again, thinking about events, you know, you might say, hey, we've been attending three years in a row, this event. Last year, we had a 20 by 20 booth. You know, it never feels good to downsize, but um, I, I think we should just take a 10 by 20. And you know what? We're going to skip this sponsorship and we're not going to do this other thing. Hey, that saved us, 50, but we're still there. We still have a presence. We're going to make sure the booth looks great. You know, we're going to still bring a team, you, you know? So 
that would be better than just kind of the haircut. You know, we're not going to do that event altogether or just, you know, we're going to cut the budget by 50% and, you know, kind of, you know, just, just take a, you know, just haircut across the board. You have to be very strategic. I want to come full circle to the first thing you said, I think it was when we opened up. You see a lot of marketers or founders as well, focusing more on that generic MBA playbook and not focusing enough on strategy. So to unpack that a little more, how do you advise really small teams how they should go about balancing both strategy and execution? Because I think it's quite common in startups to get thrown new projects every month and then you're not, you're every always week, playing every catch day. up. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. never really executing. And maybe yeah. that comes to your, back to your point about strategy and sticking to it um how do you go about strategy execution and letting that play out until you decide okay this worked or didn't work and now let's revisit strategy so there's a nuance in in my answer and the nuance is this is that there's a very common pitfall um uh, that small companies and big companies can fall into so this is just a common pitfall in marketing in particular and that is we uh, execute a new um, tactic, okay, turn on a campaign, go to this sh- new, new show that we normally don't go to, you know, whatever it is, start a podcast, you know, um, and don't give it either enough time to, you know, don't recognize that these things are just not light switches and they're, they're are no light switches in marketing. So I have already made that clear, but I'm going to say it again. They're not light switches. So we, you know, publish a podcast. We put out eight episodes. You know, the head of sales says, Hey, why are we doing a podcast? I haven't, you know, no one, no one's even listening to our podcast. I ask people, no one even knows we have it. So then it's like, well, kill it. It's not working. Um, well, um, the problem is, is that if you just stayed consistent, probably not by episode 28. Maybe not even episode 48, but at some point, the inertia, the momentum, the, the, you know, of that particular tactic, in this case, we're using podcasting as example, would 100% begin to take effect. And then all of a sudden the podcast becomes this driver for us, but it gets killed And then that energy gets transferred to the next thing that gets killed. And then that gets transferred to the next thing that gets killed. And you end up with a marketing team that at some point the CEO, you know, um, the founders, you know, the board, you know, the investors say, our marketing team must not be very good. They replace the head of marketing. That new head of marketing comes in and says, yeah, these people aren't very good. I'm going to bring my team in. And guess what? 24 months down the road, they're fired and it's this revolving door. And uh, so much of it in my experience, so much of it is just simply not staying true to the strategy, to the tactics, allowing it to work because um, either the expectations were unrealistic, people were, you know, the board was sold that yeah, we're going to do this growth hacking. We're going to buy a whole bunch of ads. We're going to do this whole thing and MQLs are going to be flying in and, and, and this is how we're going to make our number. Well, that was never true. And so uh, this is why understanding how buyers buy is so critical. Because if you understand how buyers buy, then you can just come in from the outside. You don't have to be a marketing practitioner come in from the outside and say, okay, we're in this multi-year buying cycle. There's 15 to 20 people in a typical buying committee. And we're saying that MQLs coming off Facebook ads are going to drive our business. Like that doesn't make sense. There's no world where our buyers are responding on Facebook and are filling out a form, and then that's going to drive the buying process. So 
But the problem is, is that if you don't know how people buy, then you just sort of take it as, you know, like, yeah, that's what HubSpot does. Oh, that's what this vendor does. Oh, that's, you know, you read the case studies, right? And you get caught into it. So yeah, it sounds like a case of strategy plus expectations, because to your point, if you mm. set the strategy, but you kill it too soon after the strategy cannot prove itself, especially in B2B. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is a challenge. I, um, you know, I do like analogies and sometimes I, I can take them a little too far, but you know, this is analogy that I think many of us can relate to, or certainly know someone can relate to it. And it's just no different than needing to get into shape, needing to lose that 10 pounds. You go to the gym, you sweat really hard for three weeks, and then you stand on the scale and you've only lost half a pound. And so you say, well, this must not work. We would never, you know, like, like everybody just knows, like, you know, like if you had a friend that said, yeah, I stopped going to the gym, it, it, it didn't work. What would we say? We'd all say, well, lucky, you just got to stick with it. You know, just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Everybody, you know, you'd encourage, right? But for some reason in marketing, we, we, we step on the scale. We don't see a change. We're like, oh, this isn't working. You know, got to, you know, got to go find something else. Maybe I need to change what I'm eating. I, you know, and so guess what? You jump around. Meanwhile, your weight stays the same and you're not getting the outcome you wanted. You know, so if we wouldn't do that, like with going to the gym, you know, if we would, agree to stay consistent, then why do we suddenly think that, you know, these, uh, you know, that in marketing, it works different. <laughs> yeah. And maybe last point to wrap up is your product is not perfect the first time round. It's multiple iterations, months of sprints, product road mapping, needing the customer feedback to get that product to where it's meeting expectations. So your marketing program, you're building a product, you're systematizing things, all that infrastructure, the messaging, the brand, you could call it a product at the end of the day, that takes a long time to get right. So I can see similarities between building a product and building like a marketing engine. They both take a long time. I think the unfortunate thing is runway and investor expectations do not meet yeah. the buyer journey. They're, no. they're not in sync. Yeah. So I think companies just need to either adjust their burn rates that are more in line with how the sales cycles can be, like put the worst case scenario upfront for a sales mm. cycle and then reverse mm. engineer your runway and yeah. then start building your marketing and sales to align better and you will need your board's buy-in yes 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 for sure yeah it's it's why um i you know i'm often positioned um i don't only position myself as like a virtual cmo but you know it's it's easy for people to understand but really in reality I'm a go-to-market architect, you know, and, and it's, and it's because what we're really talking about today. And even in this whole discussion is, is the go-to market. And it's not possible, uh, anymore in B2B to look at like the marketing function silo and then the sales, you know, and then the ops and, you know, so on and so forth. It, it, it's now integrated. Now, you know, I understand again, if you have, um, you know, a, account executive led sales led motion, you know, eventually as a team grows, uh, obviously you need a head of sales and you need a function, right? You need sales operations to support them. And so I'm not saying that marketing, you know, is taking that on, but I'm talking about, uh, especially in the beginning, uh, and from, a uh, from, from a, a strategy and an execution perspective. And uh, so it's really about go-to-market and it's about architecting because these things are closely coupled. You know, um, it's, it's not going to be as effective for a, a marketing leader, marketing strategist, a CMO to be over on one side designing a program and then, and then have sales and, you know, and maybe the two talk to each other, but they're not coordinated. You know, it needs to be fully, fully, fully coordinated. 
um, for maximum impact because that also helps balance the expectations. You know, a lot of times marketing gets assigned, you know, hey, we need a plan. And I hear this, you know, we need a plan for getting to $25 million of revenue. We're currently at 12. How are we going to do that? What's the marketing plan? Well, my first response is, is do you even have a $25 million business? Well, well, no, we have to get there. Well, no, I mean, okay, that's fine. I understand somebody promised somebody they were going to get there, but but again, first principles, you know, oh, and, and you take a look, you know, oh yeah. Okay. We absolutely do have a $25 million business. Okay. Now we can build a plan, but you, but too many, um, especially marketing leaders get just, you know, accept a role or, you know, yeah, it sounds like a great challenge. And then they don't get there. They find themselves getting pushed out of the company 24 months later because they, in air quotes, failed. When in reality, the failure was not because they didn't execute marketing well, they didn't know what to do. It's that there was never a $25 million business there. And this is why so, so, so many startups are in trouble right now, is that they both promised either overtly, either by, you know, or just by implication, because investors are so excited, the billion dollar market, right? And they raise money accordingly. And guess what? You know, they were, they, they were never going to be more than a good solid $50 million company. And what's so sad is, is that if you raise money in the right way, you didn't over dilute to be a $50 million company can be an amazing business. And so a lot of these startup failures do not, did not need to happen. It was just you know, expectations were set wrong and strategies were, were, it's not even a strategic failure. Just, you know, it's not a billion dollar business. Okay. hundred million dollar business is still can be, you know, and throwing off 35, $40 million in EBITDA every year. That's not bad. Yes, please. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. It, 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 exactly. So anyway, I think we also answered the, are we in a market correction versus, you know, recession? And I'm totally with you. Um, it's a market correction and, you know, and I get there's some sectors and some industries that are just major, you know, demands down. You know, if you're selling exclusively into startups and if all of your customers have you know, laid off 20, 30% of their staff. Well, who it's going to, you know, it's super hard to just make up that 20 or 30% when you're selling per seat licenses. You know, I get that. But again, you know, does it mean that you don't have a business? Well, no, it just might be 30% smaller, you know, and if you were lucky enough to raise money with the correct positioning, then you still have a very viable business. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, all your insights and um, I could obviously keep going here, but I know we're up on time. <laughs> yes, yes. So to wrap up, is there anything that you would like to add that maybe I forgot to ask or wanted to cover? No, I think, you know, um, I would obviously like to make my website available. Uh, I, a lot of what, in fact, really everything we've talked about, um, I have a blog post that I've written or an article or even multiple articles on the subject. That's uh, good to so know. <laughs> I, I know you'll, you'll link up to it, but it's, um, it's growthstage.marketing. So just growthstage, all one word, dot marketing. And, um, you know, it's all free, um, obviously. So, you know, go and, uh, if you find something valuable, that's great. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, you know, easy to find and very, um, I love to have conversations. You know, the way that I operate is, uh, I, I, I hinted at this just a couple minutes ago, you know, by even talking about a lot of startup failures in my view and not just my view, my experience, you know, being in the startup ecosystem for a very, very long time. It's really regretful because they didn't have to happen. Um, because very rarely does a company fail because the product simply didn't work or the technology was not real or, um, more often than not, the company executed in some cases very well. 
on the product. They failed on the market. And market's hard. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) You know, that's, you know, it has its own challenges as we just talked about, but you know, you can build this amazingly sophisticated technology, you know, that's really hard. So, you know, so let's work together to get your market, your go-to-market right so that you can be successful, you know, so. Well, it was an honor having you on the show. I learned a lot as well. So (laughs) that's always a good sign. And I'm sure our founders uh, found a lot of value from listening to you today. So with all that said, thank you again, Mark, for coming on to the Founder Pack podcast. And um, thank you, everyone, for tuning into today's episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.